Here's your host, Brett Sterley. Welcome back to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, KEYK 89.3, Lake of the Ozarks. I'm Brett Sterley and your host. We just got through uh, in the first uh, half of the show, we discussed you know, some of the difference between liberalism and conservatism. And so let's go to, uh, let's go to a clip here, the great uh, Thomas Sowell on how he described liberalism and, and conservatism in this 2010 interview with Fred Barnes, courtesy of Fox News. You were in your early years, you were a Marxist. Yes. Uh, what happened? How'd you uh, get away from that? Uh, I took a job in the government. I went to the University of Chicago as a Marxist. After a year of, of uh, studying under Milton Friedman, I was still a Marxist. But uh, one summer of working in the government was enough to uh, turn, start, start returning around. Really, what happened to you there? Well, nothing happened to me, but that I realized that the government was n- nowhere close to being capable of doing what people on the left wanted the government to do. And that, in fact, we'd be lucky if they didn't make things worse. For example, I was in the Labor Department, and uh, they administered the minimum wage law. Uh, to me, the question was, did minimum wage laws make poor people better off or worse off? Mm-hmm. That was not the question for them. The minimum wage law provided one-third of their to- total budget. And they weren't going to look at this uh, this other way. And as I tried to get into the question, of does this cause unemployment and stuff like that, uh, there was no enthusiasm whatsoever for that whole line of reasoning. Uh, Dr. Sowell goes on to describe the different approaches of liberalism and conservatism. They, they really are for helping... Uh, they're for helping people who are disadvantaged, as they put it. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- whereas I think conserv- conservatives want, want to stop people from being disadvantaged. You know, they, in other words, the, the liberals want to help the poor while they're poor. But really, the biggest benefit is to stop them from being poor. And that, that they have very little interest in. What is the liberal premise? I guess uh, uh, the Rousseau notion, you know, that man is born free but is everywhere and changed, that the real problem of the world is that the institutions are wrong. If the institutions were right, then man, there there is nothing in human nature that would cause us to be unhappy. It's the fact that we have the wrong institution. What is the conservative premise? That uh, man is flawed from uh, from day one and that uh, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And whatever you do to deal with one of man's flaws, it creates another problem. But that you try to get the best trade-off you can get, and that's all you can hope for. Uh, I've often said uh, there, there are three questions that I think would destroy most of the arguments on the left. And the first is, uh, compared to what? The second is, at what cost? And the third is, what hard evidence do you have? Now, there are very few ideas on the left that can pass all three of those kinds of things. Can conservative ideas pass those? Yes, I think so, because they, they, they don't assume that there, that there is a solution out there. Uh, you know, Adam Smith didn't believe that, the, that, the, that the, the, either the government or the market could solve all problems, that you have to be able to simply tolerate certain things. Uh, and the idea to the left of tolerating any evil, you know, that they want to stamp out the last vestige of segregation. Really? At what price? At what price? So that was uh, interesting. I'm ta- Dr. Soule's always been a, a great hero of mine, but it's, it's great to have some of his, his insight, and he kind of, you know, thankfully, I guess I echo his some of some of his words, and uh, so it's 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 nice to know that uh, I might be on the right track there. So anyway, uh, 
Let's move on here to uh, another story. So um, this week we had uh, the recall of Gavin, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom, that um, did not uh, was was not supported by the majority of residents of California. The Desert Sun reports that the majority of residents in 25 counties vote in favor of re- the recall. So while the Recall of Governor Gavin Newsom was quickly defeated at a statewide level. Initial results indicate that most voters in more than two dozen counties, largely rural ones in in Central and Northern California, supported supported the recall strongly. A majority of voters in 25 of 58 counties across California had voted in favor of the recall as of 11 p.m. Tuesday, according to state figures. Now, the counties in favor of the recall uh, included many of the least populated in the state, such as Mariposa County and Trinity County. Results were not final in every county, with some precincts yet to be reported as of 11 p.m. Tuesday. Meanwhile, Democratic strongholds along the coast turned out overwhelmingly in support of keeping Governor, Governor Newsom. In Los Angeles County, 73.6% of voters rejected the recall, while 86.7% did the same in San Francisco County, according to state figures. Again, those are as of um, election night. So, um, Larry Elder has conceded has conceded the election to uh, Governor Newsom. The recall has gone down in defeat, which is, you know, really, uh, you know, it's 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 one of those it's one of those examples. And actually, it's a really a perfect example of why we had the electoral college, because if you look at um, if you look at the state of California. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles County, San Francisco County, that is, those are the two in, I'm sure, Sacramento as well. Uh, you know, the Silicon Valley area, area, uh, San Jose, all those areas I'm, I'm sure went, I don't have the figures here in front of me yet because they're still being tabulated as of uh, our, this recording. But, um, you know, I think that all those, all those areas are really going to go strongly for, um, you know, in support of Gavin Newsom to, uh, in, in defeating the recall. But you look at overall, uh, you know, there's there's a large swath of uh, California uh, that is that does not like Governor Newsom's big government policies and is not in favor of that. And so, I think that you know those those population centers carry the state. And interestingly enough, you know, that's the argument for um, the nece- the necessity of a of electoral college. So if you if we were just, you know, voting on popular vote, um, then, you know, the the cities of like Los Angeles, Houston, uh, Chicago, Atlanta, uh, Philadelphia, and New York City, you know, they would dominate, you know, the 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 electoral map, and you know that would do two things. Number one, it would cause candidates to only um, you know, campaign in those cities because if they win those cities, then they're going to carry. They're going to win the plurality of the vote. If it's based on national popular vote, then they would end up, you know, getting being elected president. So they would ignore the needs and uh, the the populations in Missouri, for instance, Kansas, Montana, Wisconsin. Um, you know, they they would not you know, having kind of kind of a presence there, they would not really be, they would not really necessarily have to be attentive to any of the issues that concern us here in flyover country. 
And that was one thing that the framers were really guarded against. And the reason for the Electoral College is because the, the Electoral College, you know, mandates that a, a candidate to win the presidency has to have both a, 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 a popular presence um, across the country, but then also has to have has to win a plurality of the states as well. And so they can't just attract, um, you know, support in the population centers of the country. Um, you know, they have to have broad-based support in a plurality of the states as well. So they have to can't just represent regional interests. They have to represent the interests of the whole entire country. And you can really see where that not having the Electoral College would be uh, very, um, very damaging, very uns- unsettling, and un- and you know contribute to the instability of the of the republic. Because just imagine that we're here in flyover country, and the national government was catering to the major population centers. Well, at a certain point in time that might tend to lead to a little bit of unrest and a little bit of, un, uh, you know, the, the flyover country being upset and, you know, potentially, you know, revolting in some form or fashion against the federal government, maybe against the larger cities. And so that just doesn't really, you know, having that type of factionalism and that type of just having a can, a national candidate with regional appeal is destabilizing to society and is not um, not not the not the way that you can that you can sustain a successful republic. And this again is the argument against why we are not a democracy. You know, democracy is fifty percent of the vote plus one person. That's all you need. It just have to you don't have to have a you know it's not a plurality. You have to have a a, a plus one majority, and you can see. And this is why dem, why democracies always fail, is because these the the population centers in countries will tend to in, you know in a democracy will tend to dominate the, the the politics. They will tend to dominate the policy, and eventually you know. Person, you know, they will enrich themselves at the expense of the rest of the country, which is always a larger proportion of people uh, of in land area than what the uh, the uh, the majority holds. And so, this is what you have. This is the difference between, if you look back, you know, the the French Revolu- the French Revolution and the American Revolution were going on at roughly at the same time, but the French Revolution was a populist revolt, and in in uh, you know in in trying to bring in some type of a of a democracy, and where the American Revolution, you know, was bringing in a constitutional republic, and so I think if you look at you know any metrics with economic strength, with you know prosperity, with um, the availability of opportunity and innovation. Uh, both in you know scientific and business and in theater, you know the, the United States surpasses all of France's accomplishments in those areas, and I think you know, it really just bears out to where the constitutional republic model that our framers decided to use um, was was is really um, the most advantageous. So 
We're going to come back here on the other side of the break here and get into a few more uh, current events and some discussion uh, about uh, Afghanistan and a few other issues. So we'll just uh, see you here on the other side on Freedom's Call on Key Radio 89.3, KYK Lake of the Ozarks. This message from conventionsofstates.com will scare the heck out of the career politicians that need to go home and retire. Nine senators and congressmen have occupied their seats for over 40 years, but there is a remedy. The solution lies in the power of the people. According to Article 5 of the Constitution, the people possess the power to call a convention of states to amend the Constitution and limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, impose fiscal restraints, and place term limits on federal officials. Basically, it's simple. 34 states are needed to call a convention, and 38 states are enough to ratify the amendments proposed. This convention of states is the last and most effective option left. It's the only way our voices can be heard. It's time we start screaming together. We need to secure our future and the future of our children. Join the movement. For more information, visit conventionofstates.com. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to Freedom's Call on Key Radio, KEYK, Lake of the Ozarks, 89.3. Now, so, so Tony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, is, is an administration, administration official has had a, a rough couple weeks. And you know, Secretary Blinken's task is, is to try to explain around the Biden administration's surrender in Afghanistan. And the administration uh, trumpeted a drone, a drone strike of an alleged ISIS-K operative um, last week. And this was the Biden administration, you know, taking a tough stand against terrorists. They just had just decided to surrender uh, the entire country of Af- Afghanistan to. But it was really strange following that that they refused to identify this, you know, supposedly, supposed high-value target. Well, now we have a little bit more of the picture. Well, after further review, surveillance footage of the, and, and video of the aftermath of the drone strike uh, point to the possibility that this individual was possibly uh, an aid worker. Uh, instead of packing his car full of explosives, it seems they may have been water bottles. And Senator Rand Paul had this exchange with Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken in a Senate hearing Again, uh, this is from Fox News. The guy the Biden administration droned, was he an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, the administration is, of course, reviewing that, uh, that strike, uh, and I'm sure that a you know, full assessment will be, will be forthcoming. So you don't know if it was an aid worker or an ISIS-K operative? Uh, I can't speak to that, and I can't speak to that in this setting in any event. So you don't know or won't tell us? Uh, I don't. I don't know because we're reviewing it. Well, see, you'd think you'd kind of know before you off somebody with a predator drone whether he's an aid worker. And Senator Paul continues here on cut ten. The thing is, is this isn't just you. It's been going on for administration after administration. The Obama administration droned hundreds and hundreds of people, 
And the thing is, is there is blowback to that. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I see these pictures of these beautiful children that were killed in the attack. If that's true, and not propaganda, if that's true, guess what? Maybe you created hundreds or thousands of new potential terrorists from bombing the wrong people. So you got to know who you... We can't sort of have an investigation after we kill people. We have an investigation before we kill people. Another troubling aspect of this entire episode is how the administration obviously has no idea of how many Americans were and are still in Afghanistan after Joe Biden decided to leave them behind. Now, for the past couple of weeks, the number has been around 100 Americans still in Afghanistan. I think the bottom line is that, sadly, this administration doesn't have any idea how many Americans were left behind in Afghanistan. Our, our fellow citizens are constantly in danger, and, and their lives are in jeopardy. But, hey, here's some good news. Uh, more cash is on the way. U.S. sending $64 million in humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. This is from The Hill on September the 13th. The United States announced on Monday it will send nearly $64 million in humanitarian aid to Afghanistan a day after the United Nations issued an emergency call for $600 million to prevent famine and a public health crisis. The U.S. was spending an estimated $300 million a day on the war in Afghanistan before its military withdrawal in recent weeks. The Biden administration has yet to officially recognize the Taliban as Afghanistan's government since the militant groups swiftly took power following the U.S. exit. The funding will come from the U.S. Agency for International Development and the U.S. State Department and will be distributed through the U.N. and its independent aid groups. The latest donation brings the United States humanitarian spending Afghanistan to $330 million this year, making it the largest foreign donor, USAID said. Well, that's a news flash. We're always the biggest donor for every cause. So in addition to these funds, USAID has also created a disaster assistance response team based outside Afghanistan to run the U.S. government's response to the unfolding humanitarian crisis, the release said. As part of today's announcement of aid, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged Afghanistan's neighbors to keep their borders open to Afghan refugees and promised to work to ensure that the Taliban does not hinder humanitarian assistance, especially to vulnerable groups like women and girls. This must be the same women and girls that they've covered back up, have allowed to go back to school just as long as they are taught Sharia law and uh, they don't have their faces uncovered in public, uh, no laughing in public, uh, or they have their fingers chopped off. So, yeah, there, there's, yeah the Taliban is really concerned with uh, these vulnerable groups like women and girls. So we will continue to press uh, for the Taliban to, re- to respect the rights and freedoms of women, of women and girls and are committed to preserving the gains Afghan- Afghans, especially women, have made in the past 20 years, Blinken said in a statement, a statement Monday. This announcement comes after the United Nations reported last week that millions in Afghanistan were beginning to run out of basic aid, uh, supplies, and food. So I'm not really sure which Taliban that uh, Anton- Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken has been uh, watching over the past uh, 20 years, 
but I don't think that's really indicative. They don't really care about being part of the international community. They don't care about legitimacy. They just care about, uh, you know, power and expansion and uh, killing Jews and killing Americans. That's what their charter is. That's what their purpose is. We will be back just right after this message. This public affairs moment is presented by the conventionofstates.com. As loving parents, we work hard in order to give our children a quality education. We would go to extremes to give them that bright future they so richly deserve. If you're a parent with a huge interest in the future of your children, then you need to hear this. This is a public affairs moment from conventionofstates.com. What does your child know about American history, American civics, or our Constitution? Shockingly, most children have no idea about the answer. And you can't blame them. We've placed less emphasis on the history of our country. And surprisingly enough, our leaders don't care. There's a rich chance to grant your children the opportunity to learn about a fantastic part of American history. It talks about a smart move by the founders to reset the Constitution in case anything goes wrong with Article 5. If you're curious, visit conventionofstates.com to satisfy that curiosity. Interesting uh, story I ran across here in the Atlantic uh, here on September 13th. And it is entitled, Our Most Reliable Pandemic Number is Losing Its Meaning. Oh, what can this be? Well, the article reads, At least 12,000 Americans have already died from COVID-19 this month uh, in September as the country inches through its latest surge in cases. But another worrying statistic is often cited to depict the dangers of of this moment. The number of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 in the United States right now is as high as it has been since the beginning of February. It's even worse in some places, including Arkansas and Oregon. Recently saw their COVID hospitalizations rise to higher levels than at any prior stage of the pandemic. But how much these latter figures really tell us? Since from the start, COVID hospitalizations have served as a vital metric for tracking the, the, the risk posed by the disease. Presumably, hospitalization numbers provide a more stable and reliable gauge of the pandemic's true, true toll. But a new nationwide study of hospitalization records, released as a preprint today and not yet formally peer-reviewed, suggests the meaning of this gauge can easily be misinterpreted, and this has been shifting over time. When we look at these studies, you look back behind these numbers, these are actually, uh, they're, they're taking pre-vaccination um, numbers are, are being combined in that, in, the, in that number. So it's, it's artificially high. We need to have healthy skepticism about the, the, the numbers. If something doesn't kind of quite pass a smell test, you know, we need to, you know, challenge them. And uh, don't forget, we have an election season coming up here this next year. So I'm sure that nothing's going to happen. Um, you know, we won't have a the, the pandemic will not stretch into the election and having kind of effect there. So um, anyway, that remains to be seen. So, um, so we kind of got to, to the to the end of a, another episode of Freedom's Call on Key Radio KUYK 89.3 Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, I'm Brett Sterling. Thank you for uh, joining me here again this week, and we hope to see you again here this next week. 
and God bless to all. been listening to Freedom's Call with your host, Brett Sterley. If you'd like to interact with the show, send us an email to freedomscall89.3 at gmail.com. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-M-S-C-A-L-L 89 period 3 at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Convention of States movement and how you can join our fight to restore the Constitution and preserve democracy, visit conventionofstates.com. Join us again next week at this same time for Freedom's Call. Self-doubt.